good evening, everybody. Again, you're all still here. It's nice. Uh, well, uh, I, many of you uh, who know me know that I have a long-standing uh, writing habit, and uh, all these years of meditation haven't cured it yet. So it does have the advantage of uh, I write a lot and I can write quickly, which is why I'm uh, one of the favorite authors of the Shambhala Sun because they sometimes need something quick and they know that I could (laughs) produce it in a hurry. So, Uh, And sometimes when I come here or somewhere else and I'm supposed to give a Dharma talk, I just wrote an essay for the Shambhala Sun or somebody else and I come and I present the essay as my Dharma talk, and that's what I'm going to do tonight. The Shambhala Sun, I guess, is doing a book. Uh, they're, they're asking people to write essays. Probably lots of the spirit rock teachers have also been asked uh, to write essays on the subject of Buddhist teachings for difficult times. And I think the idea is to try to respond to uh, the current situation with so much unemployment. Did you know that there's 9.3% unemployment in California? This is very high. Higher than the, the national average. Anyway, uh, they're, they're wanting to uh, solicit essays that address this question, so, so they asked me to write one, and the title of my essay is The Raw Spot. So I'm going to read it for you, and I'll try to do it in a way that isn't too boring. Uh, One day, this last month in January, feeling expansive and cheerfully open to being interrupted, I, I picked up the ringing telephone in my study. I usually don't do that, but I was feeling pretty chipper, so I picked up the phone. And my, my friend Cheryl was on the line. Uh, Alan died this morning in Baltimore, she said. Can you come over right now? So I left everything I was doing, and I got in the car and went over. Alan is Alan Liu, Rabbi Alan Liu, who is Cheryl's husband and my closest friend. And we had known each other for 40 years since our days as as students at the Writers' Workshop at the University of Iowa, through uh, years of Zen practice, through Alan's becoming a rabbi and my ordaining as a Zen priest, and our uh, establishing a Jewish meditation center together in San Francisco, uh, through retreats, teaching sessions, workshops, marriages, divorces, children, grandchildren, a lot of things happened in 40 years. And we had shared so much for such a long time that we took each other's presence in the world as simply basic. So when I got in the car to drive over to San Francisco, I was really in a daze. I couldn't believe, I literally couldn't believe that this was possible. 
So uh, the sudden loss of, of someone uh, or something in your life that you take as much for granted as the air you breathe is not easy to digest. And at first, you really don't know how to think about it. It's, it's really quite bewildering. Maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. And, and you think to yourself, wait a minute, what just happened? I had just uh, co-led uh, a Jewish meditation retreat with Alan earlier that same month. And we had been practicing together side by side for seven days, eating our meals together, teaching together, singing together. And we, we parted company for the last time, although I didn't realize it would be the last time, uh, eight days before his death. And he died while out for a walk on a country lane outside Baltimore on a day that they tell me was a beautiful, bright day. He had been so completely present at that retreat, as he always had been. And now, they were telling me that he was just as completely absent. So I really don't know what to make of this. Of course, I could say, and I have said many, many times, a lot of things about such losses. And Alan and I were co-faculty members of the Meta Institute that trains caregivers for the dying. So we were often speaking about it. And for 40 years we've been talking about death and dying because I think all religiously inclined people do. And the Buddhist teachings on death and dying are, are very familiar to me. And, and as are the many associated practices and reflections. And it's not that these practices and thoughts were not with me during the days and weeks after Alan's death, that they certainly were with me, and they made my experience of loss much more solid and much more poignant. But I always knew, even when I was talking about these things, that these teachings, these practices, are not for the purpose of fixing something or explaining something or somehow removing your pain or, or armoring you against it. What they do is they, hopefully, clear the ground for what is there to be felt at the time of a loss. And they help you feel what I was feeling and what I'm still feeling, the supreme strangeness and sorrow and joy of our human life. We appear suddenly from nowhere and just as suddenly we're gone. Uh, the Heart Sutra says all dharmas are empty of own being. It says uh, there's no coming, there's no going, no increase, no decrease, no birth, no death, no suffering, no end of suffering. And the Diamond Sutra says, you should view all conditioned things as dreams, flashes of lightning, bubbles, dewdrops, apparitions, magic shows. Still, 
tears come. And there's no contradiction. In the days and weeks after uh, Alan's dying, I spent a lot of time with Cheryl and their children and with Alan's siblings who'd come from the East Coast for the funeral. And, and he was the rabbi of a really large congregation in San Francisco. And he had been connected to many congregations across the country and many meditation groups. And also he was really uh, socially active. He was involved in um, homeless activism in San Francisco. And he was involved in death penalty, anti-death penalty activism. So he was uh, connected to many, many communities. So the outpouring of love and support uh, from so many people was, was nearly overwhelming. And, and even I, who wasn't you know, a blood relative of his, received hundreds of emails and cards and from everywhere. And I was grateful for that, and I was grateful that I, I, I was surprised, you know, at how much uh, I was crying, you know, at unexpected moments, and how easy it was to cry with other people who were crying, and how much love I felt for so many people who offered their love and support and also loved Alan. So, loss does have this advantage. It wounds you uh, so much that your bruised heart just sort of falls open and love rushes into and out of that opening. Love that was maybe there all along, but you didn't notice it because you were too busy, too preoccupied with other important things to, to feel it. In one of our last conversations on that retreat that I mentioned, uh, Alan shared with me uh, a very odd and funny teaching about death. I don't know, maybe most of you didn't know him, but he had a, a pretty good sense of humor. And uh, when he gave sermons, his spiritual teachings were often odd and funny. Sometimes they were even ridiculous which made their profundity all the more pungent. And this was a teaching like that. It had to do with his fountain pen collection. Now, uh, I like fountain pens myself. It's something we had in common, and I have a number of fountain pens. I thought I had a lot of fountain pens. <laughs> I have so many that you know, I forget about them. Which one, you know, I'm writing with one. Oh, yeah, that fountain pen, yeah. So I maybe have like, five or six or seven, maybe, fountain pens. Maybe I have eight even. So when he said he had fountain pens, I said, yeah, I, I know about that. But it turned out that he really had a fountain pen collection. <laughs> Once he showed it to me, and, uh, you know, there's a whole universe of fountain pen <laughs> collecting, which I was unaware of. There are these uh, folders about this big, you open them up, and there's little hooks, and inside there might, might be, they might, each one might hold 50 fountain pens, <laughs> opening it up in a, in a folder. So he had a stack of these folders. He must have had 300 or more fountain pens. He was a person driven to extremes by his interests in all these fountain pens. And, uh, you know, it turns out there are fountain pen websites and fountain pen conferences. And, 
you obviously didn't know this, or you wouldn't laugh, because fountain pens <laughs> are, a, to many people, a, a serious business. And, and in fact, uh, like anything like this, they, they, they can become quite valuable. So it turned out that his fountain pen collection was worth quite a bit of money in the end. And uh, Cheryl said, you know, we need some extra money to send the girls to school, so you better sell some of your fountain pens. So he went online and he found someone to buy uh, not all of the fountain pens, but a number of them. So uh, he was waiting for the payment to come in the mail. Uh, The person that he uh, had sold the fountain pens to was a man he'd never met, uh, who was some years younger than he, and this man suddenly died. And since there was no, apparently, no good record of the transaction, the attorney who was handling the estate for the widow said, well, I, I have no real proof that you, you know, deserve this money, so I'm not sending it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, you know, Alan looked into finding an attorney. It would, would have been po- certainly possible to get, receive the, you know, to recover the money, but by the time he finished paying the attorney, it wasn't worth it, so he let it go. But he didn't mind. He didn't mind. He said, the reason I don't mind is because this taught me a really important lesson. It was well worth it. You'd think I would have known this already, but I never knew this until now. What did you learn? Well, here's what I learned. When you're dead... You can't do anything. (laughs) And I remember him telling me this uh, with such earnestness, as if it was really the case that it never occurred to him before. This is what he was telling me, that it never occurred to him before that when you're dead, you really can't do anything anymore. So... uh, at the Jewish Meditation Center uh, in San Francisco, which is used to, ha- we used to have a location, but now now we uh, we're, we use the San Francisco JCC. So we had a retreat there that was already scheduled. He and I were supposed to have done it together, but I did it with without him about I don't know five days after his death. And lots of people came. It was. Really a pretty sad uh, retreat. But anyway, I repeated this story. And I said that since uh, Alan was now dead and couldn't do anything, we would have to do something. Because we were alive. And that's the characteristic of being alive, is you do things when you're alive. And because he had died, I realized that now... I and maybe others who knew him and loved him were going to have to do something that we had never done before or do the same things that we had done before but differently. And this is what happens when there's an important loss is you realize that you have to do things differently now or do different things. So this is what I learned uh, from my dear friend's passing. That when there's loss, love rushes into the absence. 
And that that love, if you pay attention to it, moves you to some kind of inspired action. If you're able to give yourself to the loss, to move toward the loss rather than away, to try to escape or deny or distract or obscure, which is what we usually do, it's very natural. If you don't do that and you instead turn toward the loss, love rushes in. Your heart is wounded, but the love fills it up. And out of that fullness comes a new life. The uh, Vajrayana teacher, uh, Chogyam Trungpa, who died many years ago, uh, used to talk about a soft spot, a raw spot, a wounded spot uh, on the body or in the heart a spot that is painful and sore to the touch. We really don't like these raw spots. And we spend a lot of time trying to prevent ourselves from getting one. And if it turns out that we can't prevent ourselves from getting one, then we try to protect ourselves with the spot, try to cover it up with something, you know, favor, favor it so that somehow uh, it won't get rubbed or bumped and nobody will pour hot or cold water on it and make it smart. And, and this raw spot is no fun. And yet, uh, it's thanks to this spot that we can feel beauty, that we can appreciate poetry and music. Trungpa called this raw spot embryonic compassion. Our loss, our wound, our raw spot is precious to us because it wakes us up to love and to compassionate action. But usually when we suffer a loss, we don't want to turn toward it. And our first and natural response when there's some strong loss or difficulty in our lives or some pain is not to want to surrender to what happened to us. It seems so wrong, so negative. And we say, I'm not giving in to this. Still, when something you know, really strongly difficult or negative uh, happens in our lives, it influences the way we think and feel. And that thinking and feeling is really what hurts. Because it's so unpleasant and so painful. And that's the cause of our suffering. And it may be that in these tough times, with so many of us having uh, unemployment or financial troubles or fearing unemployment and financial troubles, our thinking and our feeling is, is painful. And, and maybe if we don't feel these things so directly, probably we have friends or relatives who, who do feel them. And, and we're reading the newspapers, maybe, and the newspapers are really, and the other media are making us feel, you know, when is this going to end and what will happen next and so on. So actually, whether, however conscious of this we are, we're all breathing in an atmosphere of fear and loss. 
loss of the future we thought we had, loss of expectations that we had had for a long time. And when that happens, you, you feel shock and bewilderment, just like I did when Alan died. You can't quite believe it. What happened? What just happened there? For a long time, I assumed that things would be a certain way. I expected that, and I did, just took it for granted completely. And now, all of a sudden, almost overnight, it seems, it, it doesn't seem to be so anymore. Maybe we think, or maybe without exactly thinking like this, we think to ourselves, well, it'll, it'll all be better tomorrow. Maybe I'll wake up tomorrow, and it'll be a different, you know, it, that won't have happened, you know. And I actually had some dreams like that, uh, in which uh, my friend came in my, in my dreams, and, and I said, oh, well, I guess you didn't really die. That's how our mind works. So it's shocking at first, and we, and we don't believe it, and, 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 and somehow we continue not to believe it, but then eventually it sinks in, and we know, oh yes, it really is like this, and then right then is when you get a lot of uh, despair and fear and strongly negative thoughts. Because we're so anxious. What will happen now? I mean, if this could happen, anything could happen. So what will happen now? And how much control do I have, have I ever had, really, over what might happen next? So it's very normal to fall into a kind of paralysis of, of despair. And we sort of re- regress, uh, maybe, to our childish default position when we were little children feeling so vulnerable and frightened and unprepared in a big world. And this feeling may darken our view to such an extent that we may wonder, you know, am I going to survive? Should I survive? Do I deserve to survive? Yeah, and... Is there anything at all worth doing? So that's what it feels like when the raw spot gets rubbed. The sense of loss, of confusion, the fear can really be terrible. But it's good for us. It's what we need because this is in the embryo of compassion. As Trungpa says, it's the embryo of compassion waiting to be born. And as we all know, birth is not a picnic. Birth is painful. All too many people in times like this uh, just don't have the heart to do spiritual practice. Sometimes, you know, I'll see somebody I haven't seen in a while and say, oh, I haven't seen you coming to sittings and seminars. Where, where have you been? Oh, I've been having a really hard time. Just haven't, I haven't really been able to come. But it's really just the opposite. Those are the times that are the best time for practice. Because in times like that, your motivation is very clear. It's not a matter of, wouldn't it be nice? It's a matter of survival. And you really see, in times like that, 
the tremendous benefit of simple, basic meditation practice. Because at times like that, you've given up all the avenues of, uh, you know, improving your outward circumstances. You've tried everything and you kind of, nothing's worked. And maybe you gave up on other means of finding inner relief for your raging mind or your sinking mind. So really, there's nothing much else to do but just sit there. Sit down on your chair or cushion with your situation. So there you are, sitting there, breathing, sitting up straight in your basic human dignity, is sitting there with your life. And yes, you notice that your mind is full of very troubled thoughts and feelings. And you're not sitting there to make them go away or to cover them up with a pleasant and encouraging spiritual slogan or two to slap onto them. (laughs) And, you know, you sit there with all this terrible stuff and it's as if, uh, to borrow a phrase that I thought was wonderful from uh, my dear friend, uh, the wonderful poet Michael Palmer, he used this phrase, I thought it was marvelous. Your mind is a museum of negativity. (laughs) So you're sitting there, quietly breathing, inside the museum of negativity. And there's really nothing that you can do about that. You can't make the thoughts go away. You can't fix anything at all. Everything is beyond that. And as you sit in the museum, it gradually dawns on you a brilliant insight, very much like the insight that when you're dead, you can't do anything. The brilliant insight dawns on you that these thoughts and feelings that you are having are exactly thoughts and feelings. Isn't that brilliant? In other words, you realize that you are in the Museum of Negativity and that these thoughts and feelings are exhibits in the Museum of Negativity. They are not necessarily realities of the world outside. And this simple insight that thoughts and feelings are merely thoughts and feelings It's a very small insight, but it makes a big difference. And so you continue to sit. You continue to pay attention to the body and to the breath and to the present moment and to what comes and goes in the mind. And now you begin to notice, oh, this is thought, thinking. This is feeling. And in this way, you eventually make your way to the coat check and you pick up your coat and you leave the museum. So being with and accepting negative thinking and feeling and knowing that they are not the whole of reality and they are not you is the most fruitful and beneficial of all spiritual practices. You may not think so, but it's better than total bliss and oneness and enlightenment. It's better than all that. 
And you can practice it in meditation in the, in the way that I've just been describing. But you can also practice it in other ways. A practice that I like to do and often recommend to people is to, to do journaling. You walk around with a little notebook. Poets often do this. They have little notebooks. And they just jot things down that they hear that are funny or interesting or just somehow catch their attention. A word or phrase. <clears throat> and uh, then you can you have a collection of these and then you can pick a few and make a list. <clears throat> and these can become your journaling prompts. So you start journaling by writing down one of these phrases and then you just keep going after that. Just let your mind wander and let your pen keep moving just for 10 or 15 minutes. Whatever comes to your mind, no matter how nonsensical or irrelevant it may seem. And this is a great way to empty out your swirling mind. And then you can be uh, the curator of your exhibition of negativity. And after a while, it becomes very entertaining. You know, negativity is not that bad, as long as you're not, don't like and completely believe in it. It actually is rather funny, the way that you, your mind goes, you know. Even ridiculous, sometimes. And journaling helps you to see that when you start reading these things that you, whoa, really? <laughs> Another way that you can reorient yourself with your thoughts and feelings is to share them with others. Now, if you are in a bad mood these days, you're probably not the only one. No doubt, many of your best friends are feeling this way too, but they're not talking about it. So rather than ignoring your anxieties, which will proliferate like mushrooms, in the dark, or complaining obsessively about them to everyone you meet, which also will increase the misery, why don't you undertake the spiritual discipline of speaking to others? And this is great practice that we do all the time in, in our everyday Zen groups. You can take a topic that you might maybe comes from your journaling, something you wrote or something you read, or uh, maybe you can just simply think for a little while about what's on your mind and distill it down to something that you can speak about. And then you can you know, get a few friends over and uh, divide yourself into groups of three or four and you know, have a little discipline about it, like we'll be silent for five minutes and we'll just breathe together. And then after that, everybody gets to speak for five minutes or seven minutes, and you time it so that it's, 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 you know, it's a spiritual discipline. And you speak from the heart, and you speak the truth. And uh, the idea is that, of course, the, the tendency would be to um, comfort one another and give each other good advice. <laughs> but in this practice, you don't do that. No comforting and no advice. <clears throat> you just listen to what the person is saying. 
as if you, you know you were listening to your own mind in meditation. And if you want to, what you can do is uh, an additional practice of, of give the person some, some feedback. Now, I don't, by feedback, I don't mean advice. I mean literally feeding back to them what they have just said. Here's what I heard you say. And then you tell what you heard the person say. Listening to what you have just said repeated back to you in someone else's voice can be an extremely liberating experience. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Somebody who actually heard you with sympathy and tells you what you just said, somehow the whole thing changes in your heart. <clears throat> and if you're listening to somebody else and forgetting about your own troubles long enough to actually hear what they're saying, which when you, your mind is troubled, you don't hear a single thing that anybody's saying. All you hear is what your mind is telling you and you know, putting it in their mouth. So if you could actually listen to someone for five or six minutes, this is a tremendous relief. And you, and you all of a sudden stop thinking about what's bothering you, and you feel sympathy for the other person, and even love. And this is one of the great secrets. Think about someone else with sympathy, and your problems are reduced. So you can do those practices. <clears throat> and then... For sure, you'll get a grip on your thinking and your feeling. And what you're trying to do here is not make it better. This is the great trouble, you know. We're always wanting to make it better. And wanting to make it better always makes it worse. So you're not trying to make it better. And you realize, you know, when things are bad, it's perfectly normal to feel Sorrow, you know, fear, despair, anxiety, confusion, discouragement. Everybody feels that. And that's good, because that means that when you feel that, you're connected to others. Because others feel these things. Why shouldn't you? Would you like to be, like, completely different from everyone else? Wouldn't that be lonesome? No, so it's good to feel those things. And we're not trying to eliminate them. But wouldn't it be nice to have a little bit of perspective? Not to be inundated and, and swamped by these feelings. And wouldn't it be nice to have the capacity once in a while to take a break from them? So that these thoughts are manageable and don't become full-blown monsters you know, pushing us around. So let me go back a couple steps to the time that we're sitting there, breathing, sitting upright in our basic human dignity, being there, being present with the body, with the breath, noticing the thoughts and feelings in the mind, in the heart, maybe also noticing the sounds in the room, noticing the quiet. If you sit there long enough, and with some regularity, something else also begins to come into view. And again, another brilliant insight. You realize that you are alive. That you're this miraculous, breathing, embodied, conscious human being. 
and you actually notice the feeling of being what you are. And you notice how wonderful it is to simply rest in the feeling of being alive. That this is the nature of life itself, the nature of consciousness itself. And it is the underlying basis of everything that you have ever experienced and everything that you ever will experience, even your negativity and all your joy, depends on this basic feeling of being a living being. And when you sit there and notice that feeling and sit with it even for a few moments, you will feel grateful. After all, where did this come from? You didn't ask for it. You didn't earn it. You didn't purchase it with your hard-earned cash. Where did it come from? No one knows. It's, it's exactly a gift to you and you alone. And it won't last forever. But right now, uh, in this moment of sitting, there it is. Perfect, complete, And the best part is that you're absolutely sharing it equally with everything else that exists with you, together with you. So whatever your problems are, whatever your challenges are, whatever exhibits you've got going on in your museum of negativity, (laughs) you are. You exist in this amazing world with trees, with sky, with water, stars, sun and moon, and all of us. And when you really establish your meditation practice, you will feel this. No matter what your conditions no matter how how dark a time it is in your life. Even so, uh, this feeling will be there. And when you know this about your life, it'll change the way you look at your life. And you'll ask yourself, what is really important here? How much do my expectations or the expectations of others really matter? How important is all that? What is it that really counts? What's the, what's the basic bottom line for a human life? Well, the basic thing is to be alive. And you are alive. The basic thing is to love. To love others and be loved by others. Well, You do love others. And it's within your power right now, regardless of your circumstances, to love more. And if you love more, it is absolutely guaranteed that others are going to respond to you with more love. It's basic to a human life to be kind to others and to receive kindness. And that's also within your power. You can do that, no matter what your conditions or circumstances. Okay, it's basic to eat every day, but probably we are eating every day. It's basic to have a place to sleep, but probably we do have a place to sleep. 
we need some kind of work, but we can find work. There's always some work to do, even if we don't get paid for it. Once we have the capacity to overcome the sting and the virulence of our naturally arising negativity and be able to return to the feeling that we are alive, we will think more clearly about what really matters. And we will see that regardless of what our circumstances are, we are always able to participate fully in what really matters about our lives. And we'll see that in the big picture of things, there's always plenty to be grateful for and plenty of things that we can do based on that gratitude. Well, maybe we don't have as many impressive appointments to keep as we did when we had our high-powered job that we've lost. But that's okay. We have more time to keep up with our family and friends. More time. We didn't have the time before, but now we can call up. We could say, hey, how are you? How'd your day go? Happy birthday. Happy anniversary. Happy holidays. Oh, yes, and uh, I really love you, and I'm really glad you're in my life. You didn't have time to say that before. Well, maybe you can't afford any more the fancy gourmet meals that you can get around here. Maybe you can't afford any more that really great person who came in and cleaned your house. But you can carefully wash some chard and steam it and put some decent olive oil on it with some lemon and invite somebody over to eat it with you. And it can be really good. And you can really get into cleaning the house yourself. <laughs> and maybe when you're doing that, you'll notice how really nice the workmanship is on the bottom legs of the dining room chair that you never noticed before until now when you're dusting it and polishing it. In other words, it's not such a bad thing necessarily to live more slowly and more simply. This is not what you wanted. It's not what you expected. But it might not be so bad after all. My own personal reference point for the ultimate in material happiness, because, you know, we're all materialists after all, (coughs) is a memory that I have of my days uh, living in Tassajara Zen Monastery, where I lived for five years when I was young. And uh, Tassajara is a narrow mountain canyon. It gets pretty cold in the winter months. And uh, because it's so narrow, not that much sun gets in. And in those days, now nowadays, it's not like it was when I was young, you understand. <laughs> much more difficult and Spartan. When I was young, when I lived there, the rooms were unheated. So in the wintertime, when it got cold, you were impressed with the cold. <laughs> so I can remember, on these winter mornings, there was a certain spot in the central area where you could stand at a certain time, and if the sun was shining that day, you would get 
the first warm rays of sunlight. They would shine right on you. So far, no material luxury that I have ever encountered surpasses this. And I actually feel it again every time that I feel the sun's warmth. So hard times are certainly painful, and no rational person would ever think to intentionally bring on hard times. In fact, when you think about it, our ordinary human day-to-day life is mostly about trying to avoid the financial, health, romantic, and psychological disasters that seem to be lurking around every corner all the time, so we better keep busy to stave them off. So none of us would go out and seek you know, some difficulty. Nobody's looking for hard or unpleasant things to do or experience. And yet, since we know, logically, that disasters are absolutely inevitable in a human lifetime, it's very impractical not to have what it takes to welcome them and make use of them. It takes some courage and skill, but if we don't cultivate those things, we're going to be floored by the disasters that inevitably will come along from time to time. And these hard times remind us of what's most important. They remind us of what's basic, what's beautiful, and what's worthwhile about being alive. The worst of times bring out the best in us, or at least they open up that possibility. Now, when there's abundance and lots of success and good fortune, it brings a lot of complications and a lot of elaborations that fill our lives with more discrimination and choice. And we love this. We're all seeking this. We like more options. But the truth is that this brings less rather than more joy. We are actually less appreciative of what we have when we have a lot of elaboration and complication in our lives. Because we have, you know, sophisticated critical abilities. And so we're always a little bit skeptical of whatever excellence we happen to be enjoying right now because, well, is this really as good as it gets? And so we're always, you know, wondering about that and looking over that, past that, into the next thing that could be a little better. Whether it's a new phone or a new boyfriend or girlfriend, maybe there's a better one. Maybe this experience is not entirely satisfactory. So when there's less, there's actually more appreciation. There really is. There's more openness to wonder and joy. There's more capacity to soften our critical judgment and just celebrate what happens to be there, even if it's not the best, even if it isn't very good. It is. And that becomes the strongest virtue of all, that it is. You know, like the old song says, I got the sun in the morning and the moon at night. I remember uh, another dear friend of mine who, who passed away a few years ago, Gil Smolin, 
and he went to India to save the miserable, poverty-stricken villagers of India by offering them the expert eye care that he was so well-trained to deliver. He was one of the great eye doctors, you know, in the world. So he went to India to offer his services. And he was shocked to realize that these poor villagers were twice as happy and twice as wise as he was, he and all of his friends in San Francisco. He couldn't believe it. He was there to save them. And they woke him up. And that's when he began his Zen practice after that trip to India many years ago. So in retrospect, and, uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember this, the last 50 years or so of ever-increasing prosperity and opportunity, when you think about it, it's been based on a very enthusiastic, exuberant, but essentially naive lust for material goods, as if it was the goods themselves and not the satisfaction that we take in them that was the source of our happiness. And, and that enthusiasm and all that prosperity so much raised the bar on what we all expect to possess. The houses, the cars, the vacations, the gadgets, the information. That we have lost all sense of proportion and have forgotten almost entirely how our ancestors lived and how most of the world is living now. And the various economic bubbles that were produced by that exuberance has proved have proved to be much shakier than they seemed like uh, when we were in the middle of them. And, you know, you're, you're reading the same media I'm reading, and you, you're here. I, I never knew there were so many experts on the economy, did you? <laughs> and they're all telling us that, yes, it's going to be slow for a year or two, maybe more, but inevitably we will return to the upward-reaching growth economy that we have come to see is as reliable uh, as a law of nature. But what if they're wrong about this? What if it turns out that actually there's a limit on the planet Earth and we're approaching the limit and we're in for a, a very long period of reduced circumstances. What if in the future we will not be able to expect that we'll all have top-notch medical care, high-performance cars, automatic houses, and abundant energy available with a touch of a finger? What if that's not going to happen? Well, this could be really terrible if that happened. We could have such a crisis of despair due to crushed expectations that we might have a period of horrific dystopian nightmare like you see in the movies, you know, and in the novels where everybody's going around, you know, marauding and beating each other up. That's possible, I suppose. But it could also be the opposite. It could be the opposite. There could be more happiness. There could be more sharing. There could be more wisdom. There could be more love. There could be more people 
growing gardens and working on farms. More people cooking food for one another. More people who have nothing better to do than to take care of others. A slower, more heartfelt, and more realistic style of life. And, instead of being in a high-tech hospital hooked into alienating machines run by busy professionals, maybe we'll learn that it's better to just die at home. And never mind all these interventions. Just die at home with our family and our friends. And maybe people will think it's a privilege to visit the sick and the dying. Instead of somehow they failed, they're sick. Somehow they failed, they're dying. Well, probably, you know, it will be back to normal. Probably the economists are right. <laughs> Two years, three years, you know, it'll be, we'll have plenty. But even if that is true, turns out to be true, I think it would be a good exercise for all of us to visualize and celebrate this simpler, sparer life. It would really be a good idea, just in case, to visualize this, you know, and make your peace with it and think about how nice it might be. And maybe you even want to start now anyway. Even if there's plenty of money flying around in the future, you might want to start now. So, that's my essay for the Shambhala Sun. And we have just a few minutes uh, left over, so if anybody has any comments or things to bring up, I invite you to do so. I see a hand way in the back. Could you stand up and speak loud, or are, you, are we going to give a mic? Yeah, we have a mic. We have a mic, so hold on. I just wanted to know what issue the Shambhala Sun was. Oh. I, I don't know. And you know what? I don't even really know whether they'll publish it. I mean, they, they said that uh, I sent them a draft and they said it sounded all right, but uh, I don't know. Uh, but I assume it. Uh, uh, so soon, I don't know when. Sorry. We, we can write to them and encourage them to publish it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think they probably will. They, you know. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I um, uh, wanted to get a copy of it because it's so huge in so many ways to share with my family right now. Um, my father just passed away yesterday. Oh, sorry. Yesterday. Oh boy. Two in the morning. Wow. Oh. Well, I'm sorry your I'm sorry your father uh, died. But uh I hope you have your family close by and friends do you have that? It's a special time for all of you to embrace one another and give yourself plenty of time to talk about him and remember him and tell stories and and just be together. Uh and um 
So, and then I think for all of you to figure out, you know, what is it that you have to do now? Now that he can't do what he was doing, you don't realize what somebody is doing until they can't do it anymore, and then you realize somehow you have to do differently. And it is, it is a, it is a birth. Um, Cheryl, Alan's wife, is a, uh, a novelist and a short story writer, and that last week while we were in retreat, she was there too, and she was writing a short story. And uh, without going into all, to all the details of the short story, it was a prophetic story, it turned out, about uh, the pain of birth. You know, something new being born in your life, so there's that as well. But loss is pretty awful, especially of someone that close. So it's good you're here. I'm glad you could come. And, and I'm sorry that I, I, I can't make the essay available or put it on my own website until it, it's published in the Shambhala Sun. So it will be unavailable for a while. Sorry. Yeah. But you know what? Uh, I think that there will be probably a recording of the talk. Uh, usually it's available through Dharma Seed. I don't know how long it takes Dharma Seed to uh, produce the recording. It's about an hour. <laughs> oh, it's on the website that yeah, fast? They, they sometimes just do it right Yeah, so it'll be on the Dharma Seed uh, website to be listened to again. Yeah, he'll put it up tonight, he said, yeah. Yeah. Other other uh, comments or yes. Could you speak to your work with the meta training for working with the dying? Working with the dying. With the meta training that you spoke about. Oh, the Meta Institute. Yeah. Meta Institute. There's a there's a it's uh, it's um, headquartered in Sausalito, and it's run by Frank Ostaseski, who is one of the uh, one of the great practitioners uh, of caregiving for the dying. And uh, it's a, it's a, they do various events, but the main thing they do is a nine-month training course for healthcare professionals who work with the dying already and want to enhance their skills. And so there's a faculty that has a number of us on, on the faculty. And we, you know, the program is mostly run by Frank and his assistant, but uh, various of us come in for different events to do teachings and, and have conversations with people. It's a wonderful program. The Meta Institute. You can look it up online. Yeah. I work now as a chaplain. Yeah, yeah. You you probably appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's it's based. It's meditation based. So in the course of the nine month program, there's a meditation retreat for caregivers that you know you where you really get to practice meditation significantly and uh, work on the connection between meditation practice and that work. So it's really really great program. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Uh, Hi. Hi, Norman. Thanks. I, I always appreciate it when you come here and talk. Oh, thank and you. I don't know. It's a, always really heartfelt talks and something special about the lineage of the Zen Center Suzuki Roshi. Yeah, I think so. When, like yeah. Ed, or you come and I always have great meditations for one thing. Oh yeah. Oh, that's good. I don't know what it is. It's just uh, <laughs> Zen Center comes here or something. Yeah. But um, the talk was great. I, it reminded me. I heard a. Uh, a talk on KPFDA the other day yeah. called The Power of Community. Uh-huh. Cuba survived peak oil. And they talk about the evolution of urban farm, you know, when everything collapsed there and they didn't have the fuel the, you know, for the farm machinery and everything. They, everybody started gathering in community and growing urban farms in, in Havana. And then they got back to organic farming there. And I yeah. they have some of the best organic farms. That's right. That's true, yeah. And they produce some really great doctors, and they're real simple medical care systems. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, it's a great talk. 
Yeah, well, from the American point of view, the poor Cubans are in terrible shape. Um, uh, and that, I don't know. I mean, we, don't, we actually don't know. That, that may or may not be true, yeah. But, I have some friends yeah. that were just there for two weeks. Yeah, and they, they thought it was... They're very uh, poor. Yeah, oh yeah, they're extremely poor. But everybody knows how to sing and dance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, what's important and what, what are we after? Yes. simplification of our culture and how important it is that we call that in for all the people around us who are losing their jobs and threatened and uh, anxious and stressing and um, from my point of view I I like to call in the situation of our children in this culture and how so many children are have parents that are, are too busy with stuff and accumulation and jobs and, and don't have time for them. And, and right here in Marin County, when I was raising my daughter, one of the things I noticed is that there were no community facilities, hardly any, that to go swimming in the summer, we'd have to travel all the way down because everyone here had so much money, they just bought their pools. Yeah. And so as a result, the children were isolated from each other. They bought programs, they bought pools. And so the kids don't even know each other next door. And in contrast to traveling in, in the villages of Cambodia, mm-hmm. which is a dirt poor country, the children were so relaxed mm. in the villages, not in the mm. city, but in the villages where they had nothing. And you would see them with their parents resting in the day and with their grandparents and aunts. Mm. And you mm. meet those kids, and they were so grounded and glowing and loved and had these relaxed parents mm-hmm. who had much more time than money. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, I, and I encourage us all to call in the, the benefits of a culture with less stuff and more time than stuff. Mm-hmm. Particularly for yeah. the kids and the elders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, maybe many of us have friends who, like you were saying, uh, lost their jobs or are having trouble. And a lot of times, uh, in addition to the, those problems, there's a sense of loneliness and isolation. So we should all reach out to those friends and be willing to talk about it and encourage them to talk about it and not, not avoid it or make it seem like some shameful thing that we don't ever talk about. So we have to pull together in hard times. Well, I really appreciate you all uh, coming and listening so quietly. Nobody complained or threw anything or (laughs) jumped up and stomped out and said, no, 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 that's completely wrong. So that was nice. I appreciated that. And I look forward to the next time uh, that I can come and and meet with you. So please take care of yourselves, take care of one another, and uh, let's all do the best we can. Good night.